Welcome to the Haber Show. This week we have a two-parter. The first guest is Atlanta Hawks head coach Lloyd Pierce. Coach Pierce is a second-year head coach but has been one of the leaders in all of sports in the fight for equality and the fight against police brutality. We'll talk about how he's creating change in the community, what the National Basketball Coaches Association hopes to accomplish, and what books he's reading to inform him about the issues at hand. In the second part, ESPN's Amin L. Hassan joins the show to discuss the New York Knicks statement, why team statements and the words within them matter, and why the Knicks are Homer Simpson. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. First up, Coach Pierce, and then Amin L. Hassan. Coach Pierce, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. Um, I've been keeping track of your activism, your voice over the past uh, couple weeks here. And I have to ask, you know, George Floyd was killed on May, 27, uh, May 25th, and you posted two days afterwards on your Instagram account a very moving and emotional tribute to not just George Floyd, but also a statement to say, hey, that could be me. Uh, in your statement, you said there's an appropriate fear being a black man in America, feeling safe and protected is not an option for me to think hashtag justice for Floyd could easily be justice for Lloyd. And it's because we look alike to those who discredit our existence. We are recycling hashtags and protests to no avail. And the photo was of you, uh, a close up of your eyes. And I'm curious, what prompted you to post that? And how did you go from, I need to say something to, I need to do something? Yeah. Um, the how, I really don't know. I think, um, you know, we all have that tipping point. We all have that breaking point as to what's not enough or, or just kind of a, a call, really. To me, it was, it was a calling. You know, you can be complicit. You can be complicit in, in, in a lot of things or you can, you can finally have enough with a lot of things. And for me, I think I just had enough. I think we've all just had enough. I think we're all feeling that right now. Like we've had enough of this, like enough's enough. This isn't a random act. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't a mistaken identity. This isn't, we can go on and on and on about what it isn't. And we need to start talking about what it is. And what it is, is it's blatant racism, it's systemic racism, uh, it's white privilege. Uh, to me, the tipping point was Amy Cooper. And it's recognizing what what privilege is, and privilege has meant so many things, and it's and it's and it's revealed itself, and a lot of it hasn't been revealed. And I think to see it actually reveal itself, to see the white privilege actually reveal itself on camera, for everyone to see, was a scary moment. It's it's. You know, and, and you don't equate and you don't try and make it become the same. But if she yelled rape, you know, who would have guessed that that was happening or not? Because she was saying, I can make one phone call and I can say rape, harassment, abuse, uh, torture, threatening my life, whatever she wanted to say, she felt she had the power to say. And that's what's scary and that's what's frustrating. And that was what really kind of drew me over the top because what we do know is the blatant racism. We've seen it. We've seen lynching from, you know, before you and I were born. Um, and we've seen police brutality uh, in our modern day. And we call it different things. We don't call it lynching anymore. I mean, we don't call it execution anymore. We call it 
uh, racial, racial discrimination, racial profiling, racial murder, whatever you want to say, racial injustice. There's so many ways of saying it. it's the same thing. It's the same as being lynched. Um, and so I just, I just felt, you know, I have a platform, I'm a head coach. And, you know, I think as it has, I think people would hear it a little bit clearer, knowing someone that you either respect, know, love, care about, knowing someone can honestly say, and this is for me, as any black person would say, appropriate fears, we all know it. We all know what our fears are. You know, when you get pulled over, there's an appropriate fear. Let me put my hand on my steering wheel. You know, let me show, I'm not just gonna reach for my glove compartment. I'm gonna say, hey, my driver's license is in the glove compartment. You let me know. It's an appropriate fear. Or am I scared out of my mind? No, I just, I'm, I'm conditioned to think that way appropriately because of what I know. I've had interactions with police officers before and I don't fear for my life and I'm, that's white privilege. And that's one of those things that uh, I talked with Ryan Saunders last week on this podcast is this, uh, this horrible uh, circumstance of white people seeing these videos of people who look like them committing acts of heinous uh, brutality and lack of humanity um, and, and what Steven Jackson, who I call a friend, referred to as the, 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 the smirk on the officer's face as he put his hands in his pockets, just screamed white privilege and protection. And what Amy Cooper, when she said the word African-American on the phone, what she knew what that meant was, I'm weaponizing this phone call in ways that I can because I have the color of my skin behind me. And Ryan said that when he goes for a run, he puts his phone on his shoulder or in his pocket without even thinking about it. But some of his players were talking about how when they go run outside, they have to not put their phone in their pocket. They have to put it on their sleeve because they don't want it to be perceived that they're reaching for a gun. That is nothing that I've ever even considered. And what I think Ryan, and we'll talk about this soon, is what Ryan was getting at is, some of these systemic racism or subtle acts of racism, we just have no clue. I'm speaking as a white person. We have no clue what an Amy, how often Amy Cooper's happen. And so it's just now that it's on tape, I, I think about the lynchings of the 19th century uh, and early 20th century, where when a black man was accused of raping a white woman, how would we know if that's true? And before there was any sort of due process or anything, that was it. And you're right, is that we don't say the word lynchings anymore, but we see these acts of brutality in it. I don't know how else you call it other than murder. Well, I think what you see is you see, when you see the callousness of the officer uh, with his hand in his pocket and, and not, a, not a threat on his face, not a worry or concern on his face, it's a it's about as graphic an illustration of what superiority looks like and you know it if you haven't been exposed to or if you haven't been aware that this problem has existed in, in a lot of different ways we just saw it graphically and we saw it very plain and clear in that image uh, but there's so many other ways that you know you just express you 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 don't have to think about that when you go for a run uh, which is a sense of belonging. You feel comfortable. You don't feel threatened. You don't feel that's a sense of superiority 
because you're not aware of, you know, our feeling of, of, of fear and, and worry and concern. And, and until, until you actually know that, and I'm speaking like just me and you, until you know how I feel and you feel the frustration and the pain of that, and you, you, you feel like, I can't, I can't live, you can't live like this. When it bothers you to the point where it doesn't benefit you, it, it disturbs you. Um, because when you, you don't know, you know, you're, you're, actually, you're also, like when you can't acknowledge it and you don't know and you can't empathize with it, it's part of the problem. Because you're able to get through life equally and, and, and cleanly uh, without feeling that pressure or that. But, you know, you and I are talking and I'm explaining it to you and explaining that this is a real issue until you can actually feel it and it disturbs you and it bothers you and you just, you know, you feel you need to do Cause I keep getting, you know, what can I do to help? How can I help? <laughs> this yeah. is how you help. This is how you help. You address the fact that I'm benefiting from the fact that I don't have to feel that way and I'm okay. If you're okay, then it's benefiting you, but it's not, it's not helping me. It's not helping any other African-American man. And that's why you keep hearing it is a white problem. It's a white problem because you're, you're benefiting from something that is holding a lot of people back. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what um, your friend and teammate Steve Nash said uh, on Twitter, but he essentially said it is a, a white problem. And I remember noticing that and being like, this is, I think, one of the biggest things that have changed is that I feel like people and Martin Luther King talked about how in many ways he felt the problem was the white moderate and that the, the white moderate is what scares him the most, not the extremists or the, the KKK, but it's mostly the, the people who are idly standing by. And I think that's what the biggest shift is here, Lloyd. Do you see the same thing is that people who before were not speaking out or before didn't think they had a voice or before they didn't think they had power to change are now voicing up in ways that maybe before they didn't? I think the difference that I feel right now is we treated all of this as, as isolated incidents. So every incident was isolated. You know, I can't believe Ahmaud Arbery was shot and, and those two guys were wrong. And, and we kind of treated it as that. It's an isolated incident that happened in Brunswick, Georgia. And then we go to Tamir Rice and an isolated incident of a kid with, and you, you just keep, you know, some people didn't, but for the most part, our country, our society, we treated it as such. And I feel like this one, you know, the power of the protests, the power of the reaction has been about, this isn't an isolated enough. Like you guys have seen this before. We just finished talking about Ahmaud Arbery in that case. And, and now because you didn't believe it, now we're looking at George Floyd and we're looking at Amy Cooper and we're looking at what Amy Cooper was trying to weaponize and it became George Floyd. And so as we're looking at it, we're saying this isn't an isolated incident. This is real. This is what happens. This is what we've been saying. This is what Colin Kaepernick has been saying. This is what everyone that has stood up and protested about law enforcement, police brutality, and, and racial profiling for the African-American men and community. This is what they're talking about. And so this isolated incident that we've kind of acknowledged has now become the reality of the history of our country. And there is a very big disparity between how African-Americans are treated in our society and specifically with law enforcement agencies. Well, I, I speak to you in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I spent a lot of my youth in the South, and um, that's where my wife and I decided to raise our, our children in Charlotte. 
she's from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm reading the paper in the Louisville Courier Journal um, this morning that there are Confederate statues being pulled out of the city center, and they're talking about bringing in Muhammad Ali's statue in their place. I mean, the fact that the Muhammad Ali statue hasn't been in, in place in Louisville, Kentucky, where he was from, and called the Louisville Lip, and one of the, the beacons of civil rights in, in America, and that's a complicated thing because his family says that, you know, in his uh, Muslim faith, he, they practice not to have idolatry. And so he, he, they don't think he would be okay with his statue. And that's a whole nother conversation. But the idea is that Breonna Taylor was, was murdered two months ago and the officers still have not been charged. Yeah. And here in Louisville. And um, so there have been some changes is that they have, they have temporarily remove the no knock clause in police uh, investigations or at least police altercations where they just barge down the door without even knocking the no knock policy that resulted in the death of Breonna Taylor who was shot by the police. These things haven't been addressed, I guess, in any connected fashion. And so when you talk about police brutality and, and naming that in, in itself, it's a big deal because when I looked at the 30 statements or at least the 28 statements that provided by NBA teams, only a few of them, only five mentioned the word police in their statements. And I'm asking you because you, you've made no qualms about naming that this is a law enforcement issue that we need to solve um, and improve as one of the many different arenas of, of racial injustice. But why is it so hard? for corporate statements or for official statements to actually identify the individual things that need to be reformed in this well, case police that's the problem and when you speak of systemic racism the problem is when it benefits you and, and this can be for anyone when you benefit from systemic racism you have to now confront the fact that you benefit from it and so you know specifically speaking about the law enforcement and the protection that a lot of law enforcement officials have and and i get it like they're 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 challenged and charged to serve and protect our communities and there are there are very good law enforcement agencies and officials uh, but we have a major issue in terms of the culture of the law enforcement agencies and, and the individuals that that aren't you know living and abiding by what the intent is but systemic racism takes into account everything. The, the policies that protect the law enforcement officials, the policy makers and writers uh, who enforce it and hold, and, and, and hold those officials accountable, you know, addressing uh, what needs to be implemented. Like you said, to, have the, to make that a law that you need to knock first, uh, to make it a law that you need to you know, offer a warning before firing the shot, to make it a warning, uh, a law that you know, you, you shouldn't fire as eight can't wait. You shouldn't fire into a moving vehicle because not only can you hurt an individual, but that individual can go and crash into someone else and hurt an innocent bystander. There's so many different components that go into it. Uh, and systemically, we have to try and find ways to address a lot of different things. But the taking down the statues and the protests, they're all reactions right now and it's a great reaction that we're, we're having because it's it's creating some change it's creating people to address the and confront the reality of the situation but until until we can actually say that racism exists in our country and black lives do matter and this is a white problem and it is systemic racism and it is blatant racism 
And the reason it's occurred is because there's been a history of oppression since African-Americans have been brought to this country and we're still fighting our way out of it. And what you're seeing is a result of that. Um, and that's why law enforcement officials that have been able to create this fraternal order of police and you know, there's so many layers of it, yeah. but none of them are excluded. And well, so it is, a, it is a law enforcement and police issue. It is a white issue, a white privilege issue. It is an issue about oppression of African-Americans. It's all, in, all, all inclusive. Have you, have you had you know, those frank conversations with um, George Turner, who is the Atlanta Hawks VP of security and also a former Atlanta police chief, um, who has been on a lot of these Zoom calls that I've seen that the Atlanta Hawks have taken the initiative to have these conversations. What are those conversations like? So twofold, we have a, a gentleman that, that's our head of security, team security, Vince Velasquez, who was, I believe, 19, 17 years Atlanta homicide and has a show, actually has a show about his experiences at Atlanta homicide. I don't know if it's on Netflix or something. Um, and so he does a lot, you know, for me because I'm with him literally all year. Uh, and we talk, you know, I, I recommended the book Talking to Strangers to him about kind of that, that major issue Malcolm Gladwell talked about. Um, but we talk about his experience and some of the techniques for law enforcement and some of the things that he sees in his professional expertise when he's watching some of these isolated incidents. Um, and he's the one that connected me to George Turner. And George Turner has connected me to Noble, which is a, uh, an organization, national organization, of uh, black law enforcement. And, and a lot of these are retired police officers who are providing mentoring programs or providing necessary information to address the issue of law enforcement in our communities. Um, and so it's, it's an education from the law enforcement perspective that I, you know, I'm learning with George Turner as I'm getting to know him. Uh, I've been in communication with Vince for a long time on this issue, but that's just one component. You know, the next component is, is getting that information with those individuals and figuring out, well, now what do we do with it? How, mm. how, do we, how do we tackle the issue? Well, you need to speak to the mayor and you need to try and reach out and you need to try and impact your, your, your district attorneys and your sheriffs and, and everyone else locally that you can. And how do you go about doing that? And, and that's where, you know, you start talking to grassroots organizations. So there's so many layers, but that's where I am right now. You, you talk about systemic racism, and I don't know if people understand um, my wife and I have been talking to a friend of ours that she grew up with who's African-American and she's been posting on Instagram just everyday life, how people might not understand that that is a uh, not okay. Um, just workplace issues, mentioning, uh, you know, she, she said that someone at a restaurant had said, oh, this must be a really hard week for you. Talking about, <laughs> you know, the... Uh, with the George Floyd protests and et cetera. And she just looked at the person and said, and wanted to say, I don't know if she actually said it. It's been a hard 400 years for us. Yeah. And the idea that this is, you know, there, there are people on the other side who are trying to be considerate, but not realizing how big of an issue this is. One of the things that I think is interesting is the, the NBA player pool, Lloyd, I don't have to tell you about it, but the player pool of the NBA players is, 75% African-American. You go up, you see GMs, uh, sorry, coaches, there's 20, 27% are African-American. You're one of them. 
Two of those coaches are on an interim basis, J.B. Bickerstaff and Jacques Vaughn. You go up higher, GM's – J.B.'s full-time now. J.B.'s full-time now. Full-time, sorry. Excuse me. Uh, GM level, 20% African-American. Ownership is 3%. So how do you correct for that? How do you correct when you go from 75% players and then you go up certain levels and the numbers start to decrease? How can you take a role and how can we all take a role in making sure that it is more equitable on that level? Well, and that's why I say, have we all and who has all participated in the systemic side of it? You know, I, I'm reading the book, White, White Fragility. And there's some great information in there about how, you know, the white population, whether or not you knew it prior to or acknowledged it or felt comfortable knowing and, and talking about it. But when you go through and break it down the way you just did, just in our league, you know, 75% players are African-American and 3% ownership, which is Michael Jordan. Yep, that's uh, one. Yep. In our league. And so, you know, how is that going to change when it doesn't benefit you know, white owners. And so in the book, they discuss that, you know, how is this story in our country being told and why do we think it's going to change when it doesn't benefit African American or it doesn't benefit white society? The majority. Yeah. The majority. When you, when you look at, and really white men and the book gives me a lot of information because it says, when you look at who's telling the narrative, who's controlling the narrative in our country, well, you know, who owns most NBA teams, white men who owns, uh, most TV production, white men, who owns radio companies, radio stations. And so everything you're hearing, everything you're seeing, everything you're taking part of is controlled and owned by white men and it benefits. And so why, why, why are they gonna change? Why is that gonna change? How is, so until we admit that we've never had the opportunity or chance, that's what oppression means. We, we've been oppressed, we've been systemically kept down from having the opportunity, the same opportunity to be owners, to, to, to have financial literacy and access uh, to come in with generational wealth. Um, you know, and you talk about reparations and what that means. Well, we didn't, we didn't get what we were owed. And so we didn't have an opportunity to participate in wealth and growing wealth and, and compounding wealth for our families. If you don't have that access, it's easy to say, well, you got to work your way up. And it's yeah. like, no, well, I'm trying to work my way up, but you're, you're, you're knocking this off. You didn't give me what I was owed. You didn't give me the opportunity. And now you're saying I need to do more. Uh, the system is not for us and it's been against us um, from the start. And I think that's why, you know, how do you address it? It's not as simple as just hire two more. Mm -hmm. You know, you hire two more coaches and we get up into the 30% or 40%, but have you hired more GMs? Have you hired, have you brought in more owners? Uh, and that's just NBA, um, you know, and those numbers will change and it'll look better from year to year, but that's not the issue. It's bigger than just our league and our, our organization. So when I, when I look at uh, the NBA, I think um, it's probably the most socially responsible, uh, civically responsible of the four major sports. Um, but I th think there are areas of, of improvement. There always are areas of improvement, but what is one thing that when you started a committee within the National Basketball Coaches Association to address some of these racial issues um, and injustice and oppression, you have Greg Popovich on this committee, Steve Kerr, Doc Rivers, JB, Bickerstaff, 
Stan Van Gundy, who's not a head coach right now, but is very vocal on these issues. What are some of the things in the NBA that you're looking to change or at least to address uh, within this committee? So we're, 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 we're taking a very methodical approach to being educated on the issue. And, and everything we've talked about thus far has been about systemic racism, blatant racism, law enforcement issues with African-Americans, um, really just trying to educate ourselves as a group on, on what the issue is and just trying to find an area that we think with our platform we can focus in on. Um, are we trying to solve systemic racism as a social <laughs> association? By no means. Are we trying to take a, a, a concerted effort in um, keeping the conversation alive? And I, like I said, a lot of these have been reviewed as isolated incidents. Uh, this isn't the case. And so we have to do our part in keeping the conversation alive and letting our reach expand to those to know that it's more than just an isolated incident. And this is what we want to focus on. And so we're being educated and guided by a lot of community leaders locally and nationally uh, that have dealt with this, that are experts in this, in this field on how to best go about doing so. Um, you know, what we bring to the table is a committee of passionate men and leaders that lead um, high profile uh, individuals with, with an extreme amount of reach socially uh, through their social media content and their visibility. And so we, we want to be able to educate our players. We want to be able to lead our players. We want to be able to guide our players on this issue individually to protect themselves. Yep. But we also want to be able to translate and relate that message out to the masses because we do have a platform and we don't want to just be looked as athletes and coaches in the league. Um, like you said, we, we've always been pretty strong about being progressive with, with issues in our society. This is the biggest one. And, and, and it, it impacts the majority of our league. So it's important for us to get this right in terms of what we are capable of doing and what we want to focus in on. Did you have a moment of, ah, I'm, I'm not as seasoned as some other coaches in the league. I shouldn't really be speaking up on this. Was there a, kind of a moment for you where you, you thought, you know, I'll let someone else take the lead on this, but it seems like, nah, <laughs> coach, you, 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 you said, I want to be at the forefront of this conversation with the league as a second year head coach uh, in the league. Was there a moment when you just said, nah, screw that. I'm, 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 I'm speaking up regardless if I need to wait for my turn. You know, I, I think uh, when you take a job in the city of Atlanta, you should expect to have a certain burden and a certain responsibility with you at all times. This, this place is, is born on um, fighting for civil rights of others. It's born on um, equal opportunity for African-Americans in that fight. And you think of all the histories here in that city. And so, you know, I tell people all the time, in my first three months, I was able to meet Ambassador Young, Congressman John Lewis, Reverend Joseph Lowry, and really have great conversations with them. Um, what you come out of it is like, wow, I just met an icon. I just met mm. a, a leader. I just met a, um, I've heard stories about from three men who for their entire careers have been about others and providing the civil rights, the leadership, and the opportunity for others. And that's what Atlanta has always been about. So in this moment, and I think the true calling is, this is for everyone, and especially for white people. This is for everyone to say, I can't keep waiting for someone else to bring this up or to make this a point of emphasis because we'll continue to see these 
quote unquote isolated incidents because I won't stand up. So I, I, I don't have a single ounce of fear about doing what I know is right mm -hmm. um, with my platform. And I don't, I don't have any hesitation because, you know, one of the things you're charged with doing as a coach is providing leadership and then fostering that growth of leadership for your players. And so who am I to, to back away from the moment when I'm asking our players to do the same thing um, in any capacity? And so use your voice is one of our main staples with our team. Use your voice. So this is me. Uh, doing what I'm asking of my team, which is to use their voice. You know, I, uh, I want to get back to NBA safely, um, but I, I, I don't want to rush into things with the season without addressing some of the more uh, overarching issues that this, this country and this world is facing. And um, to bring it down to a micro level, what are some of the things as the NBA is restarting and you guys as the Atlanta Hawks won't be participating in this revamp, but what are some of the, uh, things that you have taken a part of, um, joined causes or something you'd like to have the audience know more about that the Atlanta Hawks are either associated with or you personally, what are some of the initiatives that you'd like people to know more about? You know, there's a lot that we want to try and do. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think the voter registration um, that everyone is talking about is will be an important part for us moving forward. Obviously, we're not there yet. Um, and then obviously our committee and what ultimately our focus will be. I'm, I'm vetting out different local grassroots organizations here of who I can partner with. I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to lead. Uh, but I talked about I did talk about Noble as we talked about George Turner and, and what they've done. And but what I've you know, since I've been here, I've, I've been uh, in partnership with the Georgia Innocence Project. Uh, they're in Decatur, Georgia. Obviously, they, they, they work specifically to, to try and free up wrongfully incarcerated individuals uh, throughout the state of Georgia. And, um, you know, what a powerful organization and the work that they do to, you know, man, wrongful testimony, DNA, lack of DNA evidence in some of these cases and seeing individuals lose half most of their lives to, to prison for something they didn't do. Uh, it, it's powerful to know that there's an organization that's getting someone back to somewhat of hope in life. And, and I was, I was extremely moved by what they do. I work with another group called hope through soap and um, they're, they're local here in Atlanta and they dress, they address the uh, system of the, the, the situation of homelessness here in the city. And they have a mobile shower unit that they provide and they take to the city, to the homeless community every Saturday from 11 to two, um, it's been it's been on hold and they've had to readjust, you know, how they address the, the homelessness here in the city. But what they do is they provide showers, they provide resources, they provide clothing, they provide food, they provide haircuts every Saturday to our homeless community here in the city of Atlanta. And, I, and I've been able to partner and work with them. I'm actually on the advisory board for that group. And then I work with another group, Solomon's Temple, which is which is somewhat of a transition home here in South Atlanta. And they similarly, they take in the you know, homeless families, a lot of families that are a check away from from either losing their their rent, or losing their apartments for rent or, or have been uh, evicted. Some of them are working. Some of them are in transition and looking for jobs. Some have families that they want to keep connected and they need just need a little bit of help. And, and Solomon does a great job of bringing these families in and, and, and allowing them to stay for up to six months while they just get back on their feet. It's been, uh, it's been a wonderful experience 
to connect with, with different people. You know, we did, my wife and I did a pledge here in the city of Atlanta for, for the COVID-19 situation. Uh, we called it the ATL pledge. It was actually uh, stolen from, from Philadelphia and, and, and Mr. Simmons in Philadelphia was able to start that pledge. And we just, we just, we got with his brother and, and, and he was able to guide us. And my agent did a great job. Bobby Height did a great job of uh, kind of administratively taking the lead on this. And we formed the ATL pledge and we work with Hope Through Soap and we work with the Atlanta Community Food Bank uh, to address food insecurity here in the city during the, the, the COVID-19 uh, shutdown. And, uh, you know, we were able to raise, we did a matching, we were able to raise, I think, over 50,000 um, through the ATL pledge and really just kind of bring the community together for, for, for those who wanted to contribute and provide any, any kind of resource or funding for the two uh, organizations that are actually doing work during that time. You know, I'm struck by the fact that <laughs> you're doing so much Lloyd, and um, I remember reading up an article by uh, my guy, Mark Spears. Um, he's, he interviewed Marlon Garnett and said, you were mute in college. You didn't talk much in college. I'm sitting here like, when did that change? Like, when did you discover your voice? Or at least maybe basketball Lloyd Pierce is different than off-court Lloyd Pierce. But it, it seems like you have um, found your voice and your calling and your leadership. When did that happen when you went from a quiet college kid to being probably the loudest of the, of the coaches here? Uh, I mean, I, I think this interpretation is most important. Um, you know, one of the things I get critiqued or asked or questioned about is just my demeanor. And I tell people all the time, I'm not a higher low guy at all. And, you know, I, I'm a <laughs> try, I try and be a thoughtful person. I try and think through, you know, every, every situation, every, you know, opportunity and, and everything that may come up as a head coach you're constantly looking for solutions to things that not are that have happened but things that could happen and you know it's it's my point my job to try and position our guys so that they can succeed so what are the solutions that we're going to need for the next scenario not the last scenario because that's already passed there's more things that are coming and so I've always been pretty reserved and quiet and I still am I'm, I'm not a loud guy um I think you just pick and choose when you need to use your voice. And what I've always been is not afraid to use my voice. That it doesn't, because I'm quiet, doesn't mean I'm afraid to say something, yeah. do something. I just know when I need to. And when I do say something, I think it has more of an impact. Um, but I, I've, I've never been one to hold my tongue. I've never been one to sit back. I know which battles I want to fight and which ones that, that you know, I'm not even going to jump in. I know which places to be and which places not to be. Uh, so it's the same thing that I do with my voices. Um, you know, when I need to be heard, I'll say it. And I'll say it very bluntly. I, I don't, I'm, I'm this way all the time, whether I have my coaching suit on or, or my vote with love shirt on, or if I'm just on the court hooping with guys, I, I'm the same person. You know, you're not going to bully me. You're not going to talk to me any kind of way. And uh, I'm going to treat you the same. I'm going to treat you with as much respect. And, and when I have to say what I need to say, I'll say it. Well, we're all grateful for it, or at least I am grateful for you to um, lend your voice to the to the show here and, and to get the word out because one of the things I've noticed is people don't, white people specifically are uncomfortable having these conversations and they're worried about slipping and saying the wrong thing to be offensive. And I think a lot of that is just showing that they don't have a lot of experience talking with 
African-American friends or colleagues or people and, and confronting this head on. So I think the more that we have these conversations, not that people will be com more comfortable, but they just will have more experience dealing with this and, and seeing the light. Um, and I, I, think, I think experience is not, and I've told a lot of uh, white friends that have reached out it's not so much that we need you to have the experience. I don't need you to experience getting pulled over and then needing to get into this defense mechanism. What's, no, no. what's, what's important is that you're extremely empathetic and, yes. and understanding and willing to admit that this is a real issue. That's the most important thing that needs to happen right now is understanding that this is real, being empathetic about it, because it's always gonna be uncomfortable to talk about race. It's always going to be uncomfortable to talk about race and the issues of race and oppression, even for black people. I'm, I'm not this. This isn't easy to just go out and because, I, you know, what I'm trying to avoid being is I want to be passionate and I want to be vocal about it. I don't want to come across as being this angry black man towards every single white person and every single black person. And every time I do an interview, I want to get to the issue. I want to keep the issue going. I want to address it. And then I want to figure out how I can help. You're doing it, man. Thank you. Um, appreciate it. I, I also wanted to ask about round table pizza. Unless you have some, I don't know. If I don't know. I, I, I come from Connecticut where New Haven pizza reigns supreme, but I'm not an idiot to think that it's the best. Um, so I haven't had some round table pizza in a bit, but uh, sounds like that is, that is something I got to try to next, do. Next time you're in the Bay, next time you're in California, or if you're in Vegas, that's, that's, those are my three. I always get it in summer league. I get it when we play the Warriors and I'm home and I get it when we play Sacramento. Uh, LA is a little difficult <laughs> where we stay. There, there isn't a round table in, in the proximity. Yeah, I got to do it. Um, none better. There's none better. All right, coach. Thanks so much for taking the time and uh, we'll grab some pizza soon. Uh, once the season gets started back up and we, uh, we cross paths, I appreciate you uh, for, for joining and, and sharing, sharing the, wonderful initiatives that you've been a part of and just speaking up. So thank you. I appreciate you using your platform to even talk about it and keep the conversation going. I think that's important. Um, in our sports world, we're focused on the, on the on court. Uh, but I think with our platform, it's important to talk about the off court. So I appreciate that. And now a conversation with ESPN's Amin El Hassan. Amin, how are you this morning? I guess it's, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, your time, 9.15? Uh, yeah, that's about right. Did you think waking up this morning that you would see the New York Knicks put out a statement condemning police uh, brutality and systemic racism? I didn't think that, and I'm glad I didn't think it because I didn't see one. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see one condemning police brutality and systemic racism? Um, I think it was... Of, the, of all the statements that we've gotten um, from NBA teams, or rather just any team in the four major sports, this one ranks pretty low on the, uh, on the power rankings of such statements. There was, no, there was no mention of the police or law enforcement. And as I noted on, uh, on Twitter, the, um, the last five statements from NBA teams, this was a new thing. As people at home, if they're following me on Twitter or, or keeping up with the Haberstat, they know that for a, a long time, NBA teams were making statements, but not actually specifically addressing or holding the police or law enforcement accountable. But as time went on and as the tide seemed to change, the last four NBA teams to come out with statements actually specifically mentioned 
police and law enforcement, law enforcement identified, yeah. held them accountable. And now here, let me just read the statement from the New York Knicks. Um, they just tweeted this 30 minutes ago. Every one of us has a role to play in creating a more just and equal society where there is no racism, bigotry, violence, or hate. We stand with all who act for positive change. No signature from James Dolan, just the logos of Madison Square Garden Sports and Madison Square Garden Entertainment. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, like you said, we, we have to grade it against the curve of everything that's happening around us. If I told you, hey, the Knicks scored 107 points in a game, you might say, okay, that's a, that's a, a good decent, offense. It's a decent good, offensive. Good, yeah. pro- pro- but if I tell you the rest of the league has been averaging 120 over the last week, now it puts in the context, right? If they had made this statement last week, uh, or not last weekend, I guess uh, speaking now close to 10, 11 days ago, I think, as I said to you when we had a private conversation, Tom, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But if you don't, you're way more damned. So we would have criticized the statement as being kind of toothless and and not really uh, definitively talking about what the issues are. But I would have accepted it. Would have accepted it given the time that it was released in. Now, the longer you wait, it's a double-edged sword. In the one hand, you have the benefit of seeing what everybody else did and learning from their mistakes. But at the same time, now that means every additional day you wait, the statement you make needs to be that much more impactful, that much more uh, productive and practical. And instead of learning from the mistakes of, or from the, the actions of the ones that came before them, the Knicks just fell right in line with something that is outdated. It would be like if, you know, I got to watch basketball go from set shot to jump shot to like whatever it is you want to call it, what Steph Curry does, right? <laughs> and then said, okay, I'm ready to play this basketball thing. And I come out with the set shot. Like, what was the point of you watching all that history then? You should have just jumped in the fray when it was set shot time. And that's what's amazing about this this statement is that it took them four, like 10 days to come up with this? Longer? Yeah, so, so Monday, May 25th is when George Floyd was murdered, right? Most of the protests started later that week, around Thursday and Friday. People really started getting upset. Saturday everyone's hitting the streets and, and we're in full-fledged civil unrest, right? Sun, Saturday, Sunday, most teams had released a statement within those two days. I remember Monday, we got one from the Pelicans and uh, the Pistons, I believe. The Miami Heat. The and the Thunder. Miami Heat, yeah. So on the, tw- the 31st, May 31st, was really when the waterfall started to happen, where yeah. there is an avalanche to mix metaphors and avalanche 15 teams put out statements on that Sunday um, to make 24 NBA teams through Sunday had spoken out in some form or fashion. Right. right? The first team was, as you might guess, many the Minnesota Timberwolves on May 28th, Lloyd Pierce, who I just had on the pod, he put out a, an Instagram post on May 27th that uh, went pseudo viral a photo of his eyes uh, saying, you know, this could have been not justice for Floyd, but justice for Lloyd. And that was speaking out 
um, at the time. And then a, a few days later, almost every NBA team had put out statements. And then on June 9th, June 9th, the, the New York Knicks took a lot of time to come up with the right phrasing, the right word, whether we should put it on a black uh, canvas or not. And they ended up with this. So the thing I want to talk about, Tom, is again, going back to the conversation you and I had on the phone last week when we're kind of sifting through all these, yeah. um, these statements. And, and I, as I said, damned if you do, damned if you don't, but you're way more damned if you don't. And I was talking about the importance of making a statement, right? Even if we feel like it's disingenuine, it's empty, it's toothless, et cetera, et cetera. And the way I, I see it, Tom, is you, you make the statement to signal to those who are prejudiced, to those who hold these prejudiced thoughts and energies about them, that your property, your business, your brand is not a safe space for them. And so think about it like a door, right? If if you are a team like, let's say, the Pistons, where you say police brutality in this statement, that door is closed. Now, for all I know, there may be nothing. It might be like a Hollywood set. There's nothing on the other side of that door, right? But if I'm a, a racist or a prejudiced person or a white supremacist or a homophobe or any one of these other things, an anti-Semite, and I'm walking down a street seeking refuge, I look at Detroit Pistons, the door's closed, right? Door's closed. I keep moving and I walk past Madison uh, Square Garden. Madison Square Garden, where they have that statement. The words in that statement, now, if I had come by early in the week, the words in the statement would have been sufficient to make the door look mostly closed. But the way it is now, it is open. I see an opening, like, okay, he didn't really go hard, which means he's probably. Yeah, he probably thinks like me, like, what's the big deal? And then I can stroll in there um, for some. And if you don't make a statement, even if they're not welcome on the other side of your doorway, your doorway is open, right? Mm -hmm. Not making a statement just says, I know for a fact they don't have a problem because they had a problem. They would have closed the door. They knew uh, white supremacists, homophobes, racists, and I said, much walking down the street. Why would they leave the door wide open unless this was a safe space? And not to kind of, conflate what I just said there with what I'm about to talk about here. But again, the importance and the power of making a statement. I was listening to a uh, video featuring a gentleman. I don't know if I should say his name. I won't say his name. He, he is generally considered a rabble rouser, right? In terms of particularly when it comes to these sort of race relations and trying to politicize something like people demanding equal rights. Um, he was complaining about, man, maybe, maybe we should just have our own, uh, our own sports leagues where we don't have to deal with this stuff. Basically this stuff, meaning athletes protesting or speaking out about stuff. And I said, cause he says, he feels like, oh man, I, I lost the one place where I come to da, da, da. And I said, that's why you make statements. You make statements. So like guys like this who are inconvenienced, inconvenienced by people asking for their humanity to be recognized. So they don't feel safe when we go watch LeBron play, when we go watch uh, Patrick Mahomes play. That's, I, that's why you make the statement. So guys like that can go try and make their own league where they can live in their own racist, prejudiced bubble. Yeah, and I, I kind of questioned myself why I was so into or so 
passionate about tracking these statements is because I do think that there's patterns and there's, there's messages and there's signals like you called it that teams put out there as a way to either evade or actually to put pressure on. And I'm imagining a white supremacist or a, a crooked police chief or um, someone with a platform to espouse racial discrimination and reading a statement from the Knicks and being like, what is, my rea- what is that reaction gonna be? And if the first line is, I condemn police brutality that reaction is going to be different than yes. all lives matter is, which is ex- essentially what the Knicks put out, which is, uh, you know, it was, there was no mention of uh, African Americans or black Americans. It was, we stand with all who are against X, Y, and Z. And I feel yeah. like you, by naming the perpetrator, you are actually holding them accountable and saying, I see you. I'm holding you accountable. I'm calling you out. And that's one of the issues which, you know, when, when white people just kind of sidestep this issue and say, it's not my problem, that's the problem, right? right. Is that no one's being held accountable by a statement that a milquetoast statement that says, we stand for all, uh, like all racism is bad. Um, there's no teeth. There's no pressure. There's no spotlight on someone. So not only is the person who is inflicting this racism feel like, hey, I'm good. It also makes people look at that organization and say, well, what are they hiding behind? What do we not know about the New York Knicks? And why aren't they being stronger? And I think that's why these statements are important is because of the message it sends to its people that, hey, maybe maybe there's more to this, that there's a reason why the New York Knicks. And as someone who you used to work for the New York Knicks back in the day, and as someone who came up in New York City, you understand that this organization has a close tie with the NYPD. What, exactly. I'm glad. I'm glad you you steered in this direction because that's what I, I wanted to say was, especially when you operate in a town with a law enforcement agency, a police department that is infamous, infamous for the thing, the very things that people are protesting about right now in the streets. And I think, Tom, I don't excuse, but I understand white people who have a hard time understanding this if they come from environments where they do not interact or have a lot of interaction with people of other races, specifically black people, right? When, when we talked uh, last week, I told you about, you know, I don't have, I understand uh, I, I don't excuse uh, or or approve of, but I understand how a white guy who is a Wall Street fat cat uh, goes from his, you know, penthouse apartment on Park Ave down to Wall Street in car service, doesn't interact with the people. Everyone he interacts with on a day-to-day basis is either white or working for him like a driver or a doorman or something like that. I understand how someone like that might be tone deaf and not get it. But when you're, the majority of your business, right, operates in a space that is a very diverse area, like sports and entertainment, right? Madison Square Garden holds a lot of concerts, right? And by the way, you yourself, as a hobby, enjoy playing a certain kind of music that is traditionally African-American. He's a blue, he's got a blues band. J.D. and the Straight Shot, right? 
that you can't be in those worlds as much as that man is and then be tone deaf and aloof about it. It just, it doesn't, mm. you don't, you don't have the cover of that very lame excuse, which shouldn't even apply even to those who do have the cover of that lame excuse, right? He doesn't even have that, but he's trying to desperately grasp for it. Uh, I feel like by not acknowledging the, the, the ball truth. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. This is Mike Tirico introducing you to Sports Uncovered. When I lose the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. Quote unquote, I'm back. I'm back. The two-word facts from Michael Jordan announcing the most famous comeback in NBA history. That's the most impactful two words ever. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered right now to get the Michael Jordan episode automatically downloaded on May 28th. Now, back to the conversation. One of the things that you have taught me and just listening to BOM, which is Black Opinions Matter Mondays, um, is these conversations about how white people just, I don't know if it's racial appropriation, but there's very few things in this, in pop culture that isn't straight from the black community. That isn't just stolen from whether it's music, whether it's the vernacular that we use, whether it's, you know, these Twitter accounts, these team Twitter accounts that speak in a very specific voice and it's not a white voice, right? It's whatever is cool. I always think about this now and I didn't really check myself until I was listening to these conversations is like, what is something that's intrinsically just white in pop culture? And it's not a very long list. Um, friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I, I feel like for the longest time, most things, most, a lot of stuff that's on TV and in popular culture, that's from a very white perspective. And, you know, that's how it is, right? Uh, movies, et cetera. Uh, but what's happened lately, what you're referring to is the, the prevalence of what we've affectionately named internet patois, right? The idea of these companies and brands and individuals who co-op uh, black language and black slang and black kind of cultural moments to further their own message, but when it comes to actually sticking up for black people, they're they're nowhere to be found. And in, in the if I may curse, I don't know, I'll give you yeah. your editor a hard time, but like <laughs> in the in the words of Paul Mooney, everybody want to be a nigga, but don't nobody want to be a nigga, right? Like meaning everyone wants like the, oh that's a cool way of being like hip and down and da da da. Until hey man, police are killing people on the streets. Like oh well, I I wonder what they did uh, in order for the police to react that way. Like oh that's that's the line. The line is you get to choose what off ramp you have for your blackness, quote unquote, in a way that actual black people don't. There, there is no off ramp. We're going to the end of the line, wherever the end of the line may be. I, I wonder about this. Like, why should we care what teams say? I've, I've wrestled with that. Like, why should I care what this corporate entity of Pacers, sports and entertainment has to say or weigh in on this? And I, I actually think that this idea of a safe sports as a safe space is exactly why they should speak out. So if you want to put out these games, which by the way, shows 75% of the players are black or African American. And you want to say, we're not going to 
talk about issues, racial issues or anything like that. That world does not exist. And the idea, it's a myth. It's a fantasy that that world exists because to, to make it a myth, to make it a safe space for white supremacy or, or white people to get away from the normal issues is to dehumanize the players, is to dehumanize those people that you are watching. And I don't find it any, any coincidence that like the Amy Cooper video, like people were really upset about that. People were very upset about the idea that someone could, a white woman in, a, in, a, in Central Park could call the cops. Like, how horrifying is that? Well, this stuff, it didn't happen on camera 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago because they didn't have a, a camera walking around with them all the time. And so this idea of like, this is a safe space. We, we need to get back to that era where I could just watch sports without thinking about, hey, um, did that officer break Thabo Cephalosha's leg? Like, I don't want to have to think about that. But I think in this day and age, we have through technology and through social media and through just 24-7 coverage, we have gone through this humanizing but, experience. And that but, it's not that there wasn't that these weren't human beings that, that people were watching 50 years ago or 30 years ago. It's that we didn't have to face it or we didn't have to confront it. We didn't have to see it. And we could have this ignorance about watching sports as if it's this, uh, this j- just a video game and not real yeah. people. You know, you know what's funny, Tom? That video illustrated two things. I think two things very clearly that, again, people of color and black people know this, but for whatever reason, the majority of white America decided not to believe us when we said it. One is this. That wasn't the fir- even the first video of a white woman calling the cops in a situation that clearly did not warrant calling the cops or anything. Right. It wasn't even the first. Was it the meme in Oakland? It was. was, Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's 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 a ton of them over the last two years alone. You're right. And the technology has allowed us to see more of these. But in terms of the outrage that people felt about Amy Cooper, that they that at least from my vantage point, I hadn't seen from mainstream America an outrage like that against all these other videos, which also follow the pattern of white women being very indignant and very kind of, quote unquote, tough. Uh, Bomani Jones talks about white people feeling the need to appoint themselves the law if there is no law enforcement around. Uh, and that, that has roots in slave days, basically. Um, but being tough, and then once they get on the phone and talking to 911, the switch of the voice, the switch of the demeanor, the, oh my God, now I'm scared. Like that, that in and of itself wasn't the first time it's happened on video in the last few years. Why were people so outraged? And here's why. Because unlike many of the other videos, this fool-ass Amy Cooper explicitly said, I'm going to call the cops and tell them an African-American man is harassing me, which is the same sentiment that all those other videos had. But she was dumb enough to put it in writing. It's like the Minnesota Timberwolves signing Joe Smith to an under-the-table deal, right? Signed for $2 million, and at the end of this deal, we'll have your bird rights, and we'll give you this massive uh, the, the free agency contract that you're actually looking for. And so if people they broke well, the have, rules, they broke right. the rules, but at least they, they didn't overtly say that in writing. Exactly. Like everybody does it in the NBA. Why was, why were the Timberwolves so harshly punished? Well, it's because they were dumb enough to put it in writing. Like that's why the Timberwolves lost 
draft picks and everything, right? It's not that they did something much worse than everybody else. It's that they were dumb enough to put in writing. Amy Cooper, I believe, got way more grief because she was dumb enough to, quote, unquote, put it in writing, saying, I'm going to call the cops and tell them, an Af- not tell them a man is harassing, not I'm being harassed. African-American. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was weaponizing law enforcement at the, uh, as uh, I can't remember who said it, at the very least, oh, it's Andrew Schultz. Andrew Schultz, my buddy, who's, who's a stand-up comedian, he said at the very least, she knew that was something that would strike fear, right? Very racist concept, like, I'm going to stick the dogs on you. At the very least, it would strike fear in this man. And at the very worst, she was ready for him to lose his life over him asking her to leash the dog, right? The other thing about the Amy Cooper video that I believe it is, I want to, I actually hope, is that your voting record does not dictate whether you are a prejudiced person, whether you are uh, committing a racist or racially charged act, right? Because a bunch of people are like, but Amy Cooper voted for Obama, and she's da, da, da. like, it doesn't matter. And, there, and this is the type of, I believe, prejudice that is very native to the Northeast, right? New York, Boston especially. This idea that, oh, if I vote blue, clearly I can't be a racist, right? Mm. Oh, clearly I voted for Obama. Clearly I'm not a racist. They think that even as they go through their lives day by day, perpetrating extremely kind of prejudiced and, and racially charged, and in some cases, like Amy Cooper, racist act, and go to sleep sleeping good about it. Not even like, oh, I can't believe I did that. You know, and I think that's what that video exposed, those two different things. Well, I think this brings me to my next topic is, why did Vivek Ranadive or Doc Rivers have to qualify their statement by saying, I have a familial relationship with a cop or law enforcement or men in uniform or women, men and women in uniform to actually single out law enforcement. Like that is so powerful is the idea that even those who initially, and I, and I applaud Vivek Ranadive and Doc Rivers for actually naming the perpetrators in, in this misbehavior and this misconduct that resulted in the deaths of, uh, I mean, if you want to go all the way down the line, Breonna Taylor and, and start there with George Floyd, but they, they had to qualify it. And I thought that was notable in of itself is that it, it wasn't enough for Doc, Doc Rivers chose to say, my father, who served as a mm. police lieutenant for 30 years in Chicago, would be outraged by what's happening in our country right now. I was like, yes, he, he mentioned he mentioned police in his statement. But then this other thing kind of hit me, which is. Why did he have to say that? Why can't we just say that? And I don't want to like be, oh. I don't want to be uh, like the hall monitor on this, but I, not to, uh, you know, not to, uh, not to say what Doc Rivers did was not good, but it just is notable in the language that we put out these statements, how carefully it is worded and what things are in it and what is not. And I wanted to ask you when the first four statements that come out mentioning law enforcement, or police, or men and women have to qualify it by saying, I know someone, I I'll, voted I'll, for Obama. Uh, no, 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 I'll, t- I'll tell you what, that's not what's happening there. That's not what's happening there with Vivek and with Doc Rivers, at least. What's happening there is what they are insulating themselves from the rea- inevitable reaction that comes, and I know it because I get this reaction all the time, and unlike them, I don't have any relationship with law enforcement. I don't, we talked about this. We, I don't know anyone who's a cop. 
So many of the questions that I have, I don't have a cop I can turn to and say, hey, why, why, why do y'all do this, right? Uh, and we talk about that on, on Bomb Podcast the last couple of episodes. Where we've had amazing guests there. Uh, Justin Tinsley this week, the week before was uh, Jamel Hill. But the, the, the reason they do that is because when you say these things, inevitably the reaction you get is, well, you don't know how it is on the streets and these cops are putting their lives on the line. And that. It's all a bunch of justification rhetoric to excuse, rationalize, and indeed endorse many of the over-the-line brutality slash murderous tactics that many law enforcement officials use, right? And so they instantly want to dismiss your message of holding, let's hold these people accountable, which again, would be odd. You would think that a good cop would say, yeah, let's hold these bad cops, you know, in, in, you know, in contempt instead of being all defensive, like, well, not all cops and you don't know how it is. Like, no, 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 no. If like the saying goes, hit dog holler. If it doesn't apply to you, then you know what they're saying is on is right and just stand on the side of right and justice, right? The two police officers that shoved the 75 year old man, uh, I believe his name is Michael Gugino, uh, in Buffalo were charged with, you know, assault basically. And, and so when they came out of the courthouse, there was a bunch of police officers there cheering them on. Right. Instead of saying, you dumbasses, what are y'all doing? Like, I get it. It's stressful out here, but the, you're an old man. Come on guys. You're making us look bad. Instead of that, they rally around it. And so what doc rivers and Vivek are doing, in a, I believe, in a subtle way of winning over the confidence of these people who don't want to yes. listen. Because at the end of the day, that's what that exists for. It exists to be as a Trojan horse. Hey, I got something to tell you. You're not going to like it. So here's this beautiful horse I've given you as a gift. Oh, thank you. And then they roll it inside the city walls. And that's when you drop the idea. Police brutality is bad. Ah! <laughs> like it's too late for them to, to resist that message at that point. Hopefully. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying they I'm not saying they Vivek and Doc Rivers and who else qualifies a statement by saying, hey, uh, I know people who are in police forces and that's why this statement is legitimate. I just wish that it didn't need that, you know, like I I wish it didn't need. Hey, I get you. I get what you're going to say, but just know that I'm coming from a place of empathy on this level. Tom, Again, like this isn't like a new phenomenon. I can't believe we have to. We're talking about hundreds of years here. Yeah. Like, that's that's where we are. We're at a point now. That's why you hear guys like Dominique Foxworth and and Howard Bryant and and Bomani Jones kind of chuckle about like how their white friends are reacting to this and getting phone calls and asking questions about what can I do and all that stuff. It, it's 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 funny because it's like, oh, hundreds of years. Not like oh man, I've been telling you all this for the last two years. Like hundreds of years hundreds and nobody paid attention and nobody cared and even the ones who intellectually understood what the point was really weren't motivated to do anything other than intellectually understand it so the fact that doc rivers and vivek have to do that if it gets through to somebody that's still a massive improvement over literally the nothing that's happened for hundreds of years yep and i thought it was great that Vivek did that. And he actually had a lot of words, but also a lot of substance in his statement. Um, the Knicks did not. <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask you this before we go is what is, what do, what do you think the players are going to do? 
because we're going to come into this NBA season in a in several weeks. We don't know what the conversation is like going to be in this country. The pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. And so I'm wondering what you think players might use their platform in demonstrations or whether it's kneeling during the anthem. The NBA does have a rule against kneeling during the anthem. They, they have a rule saying you should stand uh, during the anthem. But I'm curious, what is your read on how the NBA players might take this opportunity and use it for change? Yeah, uh, I would say, uh, first of all, I don't think the players are going to kneel. They might have some shirts or some stuff that they'll wear. Uh, but I think the big thing here is that Colin Kaepernick and Eric uh, Reed and the other NFL players who knelt, they did it because they worked in an environment where their voices were muzzled, intentionally muzzled, right? They could not express their opinions to a wide enough platform on their own. So that was... Mm. So it's not was, apples to apples to the NBA. Yeah, like if LeBron wants to do what Kaepernick did, all he's got to do is go on Instagram live for five minutes and sports center and first take and first things first and speak for yourself and undisputed and highly questionable and around the horn and PTI and every single show you can think of that exists solely to consume content that was created somewhere else and debate about it. They'd all talk about it. And by the way, when, when you talk about LeBron, CNN would talk about it. MSNBC would talk about it. We know Fox news has and would talk about it. So to get the desired reaction, LeBron, all he has to do is talk. He has more uh, Instagram and Twitter followers than I believe the next five NFL players combined. The, the, yeah. the, the platform and the megaphone with which NBA players operate on make it such that they don't need to kneel. That's not me knocking kneeling or saying kneeling doesn't do anything. I'm just saying if I had to fight a war and all I had was a brick in my hand, guess what? I'm going to use the brick as my weapon. But if I've got a gun and a tank or whatever, I'm not picking up bricks. Like, you need to pick up bricks, bro, because you don't have the, the, the tools necessary. Me, I do. I do have, if, if I'm LeBron or if I'm an NBA player. And so for that reason, I don't think we'll see kneeling per se so much as more statements more talk, and part of that is also we have more media availability in our sport than other other sports do, and 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 maybe kind of visually some T-shirts and stuff that people can watch, can see that footage can run, that lasts a lot longer than kneeling during a ninety-second uh, rendition of the national anthem. I didn't I didn't think the interlocked arms was a great idea. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, uh, it, I, I it just, seemed like it was a. a, a uh, a show of unity and i get that um yeah like it, it's almost the anti-kneel right like colin kaepernick is kneeling against police brutality and that got a very negative reaction from people who like drew Brees, who just refuse to understand hey the people that you work with every day yeah they are getting assaulted in the streets regardless of how wealthy or how poor or how educated they are right and you don't want to understand that. So the interlocked arms is kind of like, oh, we don't want to divide like those guys over there. That's mm -hmm. the message I feel like it sends. Um, but I, I, I think it's unnecessary. I think NBA players as a whole have a much more powerful tool than arm interlocking or kneeling or any of that. So they get to speak and their voices get to be heard. 
what are ways that systemic racism manifests itself in your life? I mean, oh, I mean, it's it, like it doesn't turn off. It's not. It's it's almost like imagine if it's raining, and it's always raining. Like you're gonna say, like, how have you gotten wet? Like, well, just living, right? Uh, whether it's everything from police stops, you know, uh, Vinny Goodwill, our, our good friend, he writes for Yahoo Sports. He wrote an excellent kind of piece about his experience being pulled over by law enforcement for no reason. Uh, over the, just like, and his story is over the last four years. It wasn't even his entire mm -hmm. life. And I said, this is excellent. Also, every black person I know has at least one story like this, if not most, right? Mm -hmm. And so myself included. I've got a master's degree and I've got two bachelor's degree and I graduated summa cum laude and I, I'm on TV and, and it's happened to me. It's happened to me to the point where like, I'm so desensitized. I'm like, yeah, this is part and parcel of what it is. Um, I think for me, Tom, I come from a, a standpoint that the racists are out there and they're going to do racist things. And I, all I can do is prepare myself to uh, you know, evade those situations if possible. And if, if I can't evade it, to confront and come out alive and victorious, right? The things that upset me, ups, truly upset me, are not that. It's the people around me who you all know this thing is happening and you do nothing about it. I talked about it on Bomb. We have a colleague who used to work with us over at ESPN. And this is someone who has supported people who have made it very clear and blunt their opinions on racial equality on gender equality etc cetera, etc cetera. and my thing is like you you're not that wall street bro who as i said earlier lives on park ave takes a car service doesn't interact with black people unless they're kind of menial employees like drivers or whatever probably doesn't interact with a whole lot of women for that matter you're someone who makes a living in this industry, covering black athletes, talking to black athletes, working alongside black people like me, for instance, right? And none of that has colored or changed your thoughts and views of the world. To me, that upsets me almost as much, if not more, than the outright cartoonish, stereotypical racist with a Klan hoodie on, right? Right. He is who he is. I know he's out there. It's the other ones. It's like, y'all know better. Y'all know better. You, there, you have no excuse. And th those are the things that I, I think bother me and keep me up at night, literally. Yeah, I think it was, I mentioned this with Lloyd Pierce, it's the white moderate that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He, he wrote about, which is the thing that scares him. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, Malcolm X talked about it uh, when he talked about they asked him about the 64 presidential election, Goldwater versus LBJ. Goldwater, the Republican candidate, conservatives, a conservative's conservative, and just quite frankly didn't have a whole lot of patience for uh, civil rights. And LBJ obviously was the author of the Civil Rights Act. Or that was a big thing that was passed during his presidency. And so um, Malcolm X was asked, like, who, who, who are you voting for? Or who are you voting for? Who, who do you like? And he said, first of all, both of them, don't have the interest of black people at heart, right? They're both, it's like, you're asking prey, would you rather be eaten by the wolf or eaten by the fox, right? You're gonna get eaten either way. I don't wanna be eaten. That's what I don't, that's what I want. I want to be not eaten, but you're asking me which would I rather, 
He said, the wolf says, I am a wolf. You are prey. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat you. And then he eats you. The fox says, hey, I'm your buddy. What are you doing tonight? Let's go out. Let's have a beer. Da, da, da. And then he eats you. I'm eating either way, but at least the wolf is very upfront about it, right? The, uh, the white moderate is sometimes like the fox, right? You want to be friendly, but yet many of your actions end up in the prey beating, being eaten anyway. M many times it's on your dinner plate, even though you don't know. It. Like, oh, this is great ground. What, what kind of meat is it? Like, yeah, you're eating the prey right there. And so to circle back, even as I am more upset about the foxes over the wolves, I still think statements are important because it tells the wolves, don't even try coming around here to eat. You know, you might, some foxes might slip through and get some eating done, but at least we're stopping the outright, I'm just here to eat people, wolves, right? And it lets them know this is not a safe space for you. And I think that's an important mm. first step in a way that maybe five years ago, I would not have thought like that. I would have thought, no, 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 no. I want them to be exposed and let them know. Like, now I'm like, well, I want them to stay away. I, I don't want them feeling ever that comfortable again as, as they have in the last four or five years. We were, I think in earlier iterations of this pod, when I uh, asked if you wanted to be on it this week, we were going to talk NBA, but I feel like we're still a ways away from getting to that point. We will uh, talk about the return of the NBA at some point. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, we got well, the good news. Is we got a lot of time, right? They're not going to report until the end of June. Yeah. And then, uh, and then games don't start until the end of July. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're clamoring, Oh my God, won't they just talk about their, <laughs> like, we've got plenty of time. Don't worry. We're going to get there. And uh, there's, there's still plenty we need to talk about um, on the NBA front, but we'll get there eventually. But now, you know, this is the room and, um, and the, the Knicks read the room and <laughs> sat on it and sat on it and sat on it and actually emailed the employees to say, hey, we're going to sit this out. And then suddenly uh, on the morning of Tuesday, June 9th, they decided, let's, let's throw something out there, which is. You, uh, you, ever, you ever watch The Simpsons? There's this episode where Homer's sitting at a table or someone, uh, Homer's out in, in public with his friends and someone says, like, hey you know homer's a little slow and then they zoom in on homer's head so they got his internal monologue and he says wait, wait something happened a butterfly flew by no 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 wait something else happened slow he called you slow and then it zooms out on homer standing up saying, hey i am not slow and when it zooms all the way out you see it's nighttime and he's in his kitchen at the table <laughs> that's what the knicks just did right like it, it took them a, a they process and hey racism is bad and it's like yo man everybody's moved like so far past that point and that that's the that's the irritation right there we got to clip that chris <laughs> the nick says as homer simpson um all right i mean thank you so much and um i think the statements are important in some for a variety of reasons i'm glad we got to talk about it because it's uh it's one of those things that you know, when we talk about orange ball going through or an orange ring, it's very rare that we get an opportunity to point out these things in our everyday life and, um, and why words matter and why statements matter. So thank you for, uh, for hopping on, man. Oh, man, thanks for having me. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to thank Coach Lloyd Pierce for coming on and sharing his visions, sharing his words. 
and sharing a plan going forward. Um, appreciate his activism. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Lloyd Pierce LP. I also want to give a thank you to Amin Al Hassan for joining me. You can follow him on ESPN's The Jump, Sirius XM NBA Radio, and the Bomb Podcast, B O M M Podcast. And you can also follow him on Twitter as well, at Darth Amin. That's at D A R T H A M I N on Twitter. Last week, uh, just as a reminder, we talked to Minnesota head coach Ryan Saunders about his role in this conversation and why he spoke up. Um, So definitely check out that as well. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends and your family and the strangers. Please. Thank you. Until next time on The Haber Show.